Okay. 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 How are you, Jolyn? Well, you know, it's a Tuesday. We're about to get into some executive education. So I'm excited. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Uh, excited that we're about to get into some executive education as well. Week five, uh, Mark. It's week five. <laughs> out of, week five out of 52. Like, I'm excited. <laughs> I don't think that people realize that. So excited that the fact that I think I just realized I just turned on my AI camera. So that's oh, interesting. So mine is too. Don't do that. Okay. Don't, that's that's what turns it. I just t had to turn it off. It just did that again. Yeah, I think I turned mine off too. So that's good. So <laughs> yeah, gestures. <laughs> <laughs> How was your weekend? Well, you know, it was my birthday, so it was great. I, I know, right? Fantastic weekend. Oh, love. I went to concerts, you know, like just lived life, went to two beaches and enjoyed myself. So I like I like. I How like, did you well, um, enjoy the national holiday? I, you know, again, I apologize that banks were closed. You know, sorry about that inconvenience. But how did you manage? I just watched shows and <laughs> did you catch the parade. Uh, no. No parade. Oh, no. I'm shocked that you didn't catch. The I didn't. I did not catch the Jolin parade. Like, yeah, there's you know, a parade. It, you know, it was. A, it, it didn't come through my block. <laughs> I didn't come through the Monroe Estates, but you know, it's okay. You know, maybe next year. You know, I, I've been lobbying, so hopefully next year it'll make it. It'll come through. But if not, you know, I know that the, I know it was still lit regardless whether or not I was there or not. So. <laughs> what's up everybody uh, let's we got a lot to get into today so uh let's just get it started first things first go ahead and like share and comment as we go through the video but make sure you hit the like button and the share go ahead and share it with five friends like this is like it's kind of rare now that we get to talk about economics so this is like pretty cool in the sense of how is it that we're kind of like tying everything together so mm -hmm. if you really think about year one all the way to where we are here in year four I mean, it's going to like start to come full circle for a lot of people. So we strongly urge that you share it with at least, I'm not going to do the gesture, with five people that you know, <laughs> and hopefully that they will ultimately find value. Uh, but let's just get into it. Like, for example, what's up? I'm Mark Monroe, accompanied by my wonderful co-host, co-producer, co-creator, and all things galactic, and fresh off of a fresh birthday, give it up for none other than the wonderful... Hey, y'all. It's Jalen GC in the place to be. What does it, cousins? <laughs> Welcome to the Come Up series. And this is executive education. You know, we're pretty much on this journey of 52 weeks of just pure executive knowledge courses that you can get here straight up for the free 99. So we thought, you know, we've done a lot of things here at the Come Up series. So, you know, why not go even further and think about it on a graduate level uh, platform as it pertains to giving you guys just so much knowledge in 52 weeks. So if you think about it every week, we're going to probably give you a lesson that is pretty much jam packed of a course that you would normally take for a quarter or a semester at any graduate program. And our challenge is, is to drop it all in and make it, of course, digestible but all within one hour. But hopefully, just remember this, you're not going to learn everything in, in this one hour, but the goal is, is that you can go ahead and keep that knowledge of research going. So go even further beyond what we're just starting here in the presentations for you. But it's a good jump start for everybody here. If you know something, great, you can share it with other people. If you don't, go ahead and take copious notes. And without further ado, Jolyn, should we do it? Should we do it? Yeah, I'm ready. Pins are ready. Go ahead and cue that intro for us, please. So we got a lot to get into today, Jolyn. What's up? Can you hear me? Yeah. However, we forgot to say who the first person was. 
Who were they? How can it I have missed Charmaine. that? What's up, Charmaine? Thank it's you for Charmaine. being the first. And by the way, uh, thank you for having your notification bell. We definitely salute you because you have definitely been taking your copious notes. You have been rocking with us. I think I want to say since day one, you're one of the day one cousins, if I'm if I'm correct. But uh, thank you so much for having your notification bell turned on. We salute you. Thank you for supporting our channel. And of course, taking good notes and being studious. So we salute you, Scholar. All right. So uh, also shout out to our cousins over there on LinkedIn that are watching in with us. Uh, I've been getting a lot of feedback here from what we're hearing from the LinkedIn community, and it's kind of mm -hmm. interesting. So we definitely say you're welcome. We are totally appreciative that you are taking the time out of your busy schedule to just to just sit down with us for an hour and let us go ahead and give you some pretty solid lectures with a little bit of entertainment, um, but with a lot of value. So what is on the agenda for today, Jolene? Because we got a lot to discuss. Mark, we are going to be talking about microeconomics, which is pretty exciting. Indeed, indeed, indeed. All right, all right, all right. So let's see here. Well, I mean, so today is all about microeconomics and competition and or microeconomics of competition and strategy. Now, journey back with us. We did talk about micro versus macroeconomics a while back. If we can, if we can find that video, we'll definitely link it in the description down below. Um, but this is a little bit different because now that we are <laughs> executives now, <laughs> you know, as I, we are executives now, we got to like switch it up a little bit and start applying it. So just so that way, you know, when you take executive education here at the come up series, our goal is so that way you can start applying that knowledge tomorrow or today, whenever you decide to be watching or listening into it, if you're listening to it from Spotify or Apple Podcasts, salute to you. Thank you for listening in. Um, but our goal is so that way you can apply it immediately. And then on top of that, it's multifaceted. So you can see it in many different uh, variations, whether it's through entrepreneurship, whether it's through your career, or even in, in your journey as an investor. So, you know, things are all quite relative and... Yeah, there's that. All right. So um, without further ado, let us go into presentation mode because, you know, you guys know what we look like. You guys know who we are. So we want the actual slides to actually come to life for you all today. All right. So let's get into it. So when we think about it, I'm going to go through alongside with Jolyn uh, just four key areas, which is, of course, introduction to microeconomics. Um, so pretty much let's just slow down for a second because I'm very excited to talk about this if you haven't <laughs> noticed yet. <laughs> I, I really am. So microeconomics of competition and strategy. Um, so it's very important and relevant because of the fact of what we see in business as well as management. So, you know, we're going to definitely hit on some key concepts, some key terms for you to definitely walk away with. And then we're going to go into market structures and competition analysis of different market structures, including perfect competition, monopolistic, and oligopolies and all those other things. Uh, then we're going to have a discussion uh, as it pertains to competition in, in the, uh, each of those markets and their structure as it pertains to pricing and product development. And then we're going to go into like the third section, which is strategic uh, decisions, uh, plus a little bit of a marketing mix which includes market segmentation, targeting, and uh, product differentiation and cost, benefit analysis. Um, and then we're gonna finish it off with market research and consumer behavior. Uh, so, and seeing exactly how those, and well, even throughout this presentation, we'll provide some real world examples and case studies of how each and every single one of these things play out. So let's just get to the nitty gritty, shall we? Yay. First things first, looking at what is microeconomics. Well, you know, Mark, Mark, uh, microeconomics is defined as the study of individual decision making, uh, firm behavior and market interactions. Mark, you know what's interesting about this? That word, that uh, phrase, decision making, that's like the theme for mm -hmm. all of this. So stay tuned. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so if you you'll start hearing that across the board a lot in today's presentation where we talk about decision-making. So when you think about it in your career, you're gonna to have to make decisions. When you think about it as it pertains to entrepreneurship, you're definitely gonna to have to make decisions. And also as an investor, you've definitely got to make decisions. So let's get into it, shall we? Yes. So let's start with the basics, You know, the basics of microeconomics. So it's broken down into four main key areas. So allocation of resources and opportunity costs, 
marginal analysis, and scarcity. So in this, like I said, I'm going to do some of the definition. So that way for those at home or that are traveling and driving, if you're just listening to this via audio, uh, I'll definitely be reading this off for you. But then also we'll get into a little bit of the discussion of it. Um, so let's let's get to it, shall we? Mm-hmm. All right. When we think about microeconomics, like as Jolyn said, is the study of how individuals and firms make decisions and how those decisions interact in markets. So it deals with the allocation of scarce resources and the determination of prices and output in markets. So when we think about allocation of resources, right? So allocation of resources is the process of determining how scarce resources are distributed among different users. All right. So when we think about that, you know, it refers to, you know, in in microeconomics, it helps us understand how markets allocate resources uh, to their most efficient use. So in business or when we think about it economically, all things must be, we always think about it from an efficient standpoint. Are we using resources efficiently or are we overusing them? So those are the things in which that we pay attention to very heavily. And then when we think about opportunity costs, it's, I mean, this is probably one of the most important concepts and I'll, I'll break it down in, in the definition for you real quick. So the cost of the best alternative that must be given up in order to pursue a certain action or decision. So Understanding opportunity costs helps individuals and companies make better decisions by comparing the benefits and costs of different options. So, for example, um, and I'm going to actually bring it down to the real world. I'm going to I'm going to bring it down a notch instead of just thinking about it from a company basis. Let's look at opportunity costs from a whole different perspective. So that way I can I can marry the idea and let it marinate for folks. So when we think about opportunity costs, let's say, for example, that you have, um, let's say that you have to go to work or that you have an exam the very next day, right? And this can like significantly for the next day is going to be huge for you. You got to further your career. But then, you know, you have friends and or, you know, family members in town or whomever that want to go out and just party. Now, <laughs> you have to weigh as it pertains to the opportunity, like, for example, you know, like, for example, they say that there's this girl that you've been very much so interested in or this or, or guy, whatever it is that you've been interested in. They're going to be there and they're, they want to see you. But then at the same token, you have this major career move that's going to take place tomorrow and you can't be late for it. So on both sides, you're, you're met with an opportunity. You have to weigh out exactly which one has, carries a heavier cost. So, for example, you go out that night, but then you risk the, uh, you risk that opportunity by potentially <laughs> sleeping in and showing up late and then therein missing your career opportunity. So there's, or, there's another option, Mark. This very decision happened for me. Like I was faced with this opportunity cost in college while I was taking microeconomics. Um, we decided to study. The next day was an exam. We decided to study. But then, you know, after a while, we're like, forget it. Let's go to Canada. We went to Canada And we couldn't risk going to sleep. So we stayed up and went to class to take our exam at 8 a.m. in our club clothes. And I mean, we did great on the exam, surprisingly. But if we would have went to sleep, it would have been over. It would have been over. (laughs) And, you know, we look at opportunity uh, opportunity costs across the board. It can also work for investors. For example, you know, you say, okay, hey, well, instead of me holding on to my process and sticking to whatever my process is, I'm going to literally go and be a rogue agent and literally like do something that's completely out of character uh, within my portfolio and like not even fully like weighing out the actual like benefits or just weighing out. I just see just nothing but benefit, but I don't see the risk. And that's a huge opportunity cost in which that you are literally putting up for grabs in which that can ultimately deteriorate or destroy your portfolio. So it's all around us when we look at it across the board. So when we think about economic terms and everything else that I'll give you tonight alongside with Jolyn, remember, it's multifaceted, it's life, it's business, it's relationships, it's everything. All right. So let's get back to this slide, shall we? Mm -hmm. All right. So when we look at the marginal analysis, like that's the next part. So it is the process of analyzing the additional benefits and costs of one uh, or one more unit of a good or service. So what does that mean? By considering the marginal benefits and costs, individuals and companies can make more informed decisions about how much to produce and consume. So you're seeing this across the board if we look at what's happening in PC sales. So PC sales have been like significantly stagnant because of the fact that they had overproduced and there was way too much supply And ultimately, they had to wait for the supply to essentially dwindle down and ultimately create its own scarcity 
in order for to de- in order for demand to build right back up. And we see this happen across multiple different marketplaces. And then so when we think about the, the next thing, like I mentioned, scarcity, which drives that next part home. Um, so scarcity is the limited availability of resources in comparison to the unlimited wants and needs of individuals in society or and society, I should say. All right. So when we think about that, right, um, just to simply address it, you know, it's a fundamental economic problem that microeconomics always seeks to address through the allocation of resources and the determination of prices and markets. So you'll see how these things, how these concepts flow as we go throughout the, the majority of this presentation. So let's move on to it. So let's talk about market structures and competition. Like this is pretty much navigating the competition landscape. So, you know, when we think about it, we're going to discuss different market structures and their impact on competition. Market structures are defined by the number of firms or companies in a market, the level of differentiation in products and barriers to entry and exit, uh, there are four main market structures, uh, perfect competition, monopolistic uh, competition, oligopoly, and monopoly, which let's go ahead and just go directly into that, shall we? So these are the main keys to when we think about market structure. So when we think about it, uh, market structure, characteristics of a market that determine the level and nature of competition, and which leads us into the four. So there's perfect competition, which is a market structure where there are many buyers and sellers and no barriers to entry or exit. Okay, that's pretty cool. But then we got monopolistic competition. And these are the market structures where there are many buyers and sellers, but each offers a slightly differentiated product. Okay. And then if we think about the next part, which is oligopoly, which I put oil there, because a lot of times, you know, a lot of your Russian oligarchs are like, you know, have some sort of tie to like oil or energy. So if we think about that, it's a market structure where a small number of firms dominate the market. So which means that there's only a handful of companies or a handful of organizations in which that they have their they literally control it. There is really no entry for anybody smaller to really join in. And if they do, they'll probably most likely be gobbled up immediately. And then we'll see monopoly, which is I mean, which is very close. Uh, market structure where a single firm has complete control over the market and there are no close uh, substitutes for its product. So, <laughs> Jolyn, yes, let's do a breakdown of this one real quick. So when we think about perfect competition, uh, so we characterize it by, like I said, many buyers and sellers, no barriers to entry or exit. So that's like a, that's like pretty much when we think about single products, you know, like that's 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 kind of like what we're thinking about. So under perfect competition, companies have little control over prices and must accept market prices. So they can't really control exactly like what is going to be priced like what it, it just is what it is. Mm. All right. Now, when we think about monopolistic competition, it's similar to perfect competition, but with a slight differentiation in products. In this market structure, firms have some control over prices, but face competition from close substitutes. Hmm, it reminds me of somebody, but I guess we'll talk about it later. <laughs> okay, then we can do that. All right, so then when we think about oligopolies, yep, I, I got it right, oligopolies, <laughs> they are <laughs> dominated by a small number of firms and these firms have significant control over prices and production. So entry into an oligopolistic uh, market is often difficult due to barriers such as economics of scale or government regulation. So, you know, you'll always hear me say this, and this is like me putting my venture capital hat on, where I always say, do the, does the business support the economics and does the economics support the business? That's one of the things in which that I look at across the board. All right. And I see people like throwing up and uh, mentioning specific companies within the chat. And yeah, I'm glad that you guys are, you guys are starting, you guys are catching it. You guys are catching it. Now let's look at monopolies. They have complete control over a market. There are no close substitutes for their product. Monopolies can charge high prices and limit production and entry into a monopolistic market is typically impossible. So if you think about it, like just for for the folks in the room, who was the last company that actually got flagged and was found guilty of uh, of monopoly? Let's see what the chat says. Let's see what the chat says. They got to catch up. They got to catch up. Okay, so Andre says Apple. Okay, so Apple was not found guilty of monopolistic practices. Someone says Meta, says Ticketmaster. Uh, We we got got the answer. Okay. So from Samuel Souvenir, he Mm -hmm. actually posted correctly. Microsoft was the most recent company that was actually found guilty of monopolistic practices. 
Now, if you remember Journey Back, they were that's how they got into that whole issue with Netscape, where they were literally knocking out competition because of the fact that they brought on their own web, uh, their own internet providing, which literally knocked out Netscape and many of the other players because of the fact that it was hosted on Microsoft's Windows platform, which literally created pretty much no barrier of entry to any of the folks. So there you have it. All right. So with that being said, right, like because which leads us into the next thing. Let's talk about market power and failure. And I wonder, have any of you heard of this before? Like, you know, really, have you heard of this? All right, so let's let's talk about it real quick. So market power refers to the ability of a company to influence the price of a good or service through its actions. So companies with this kind of power are able to increase prices and reduce output, which can lead to market failure. Okay, so just want you guys to think about, like, who are some of those companies? All right, and then we also have market failure, Right. Which is a situation in which that the market fails to allocate resources efficiently. So this can occur for a variety of reasons, including market power, externalities and information asymmetry. So which means that, again, we've seen this happen before on the market failure. And I think the last time that we saw this was around the dot com uh, bubble bus. Now we see market power take place all the time. When we look at companies that have that ability to influence the market uh, price of a good and service through its actions. So like, for example, one of the most recent activities that you saw within market power was look at what happened with, tes with Tesla. Tesla dropped its price. And it, because of the fact that it dropped its price, what happened? What's happening across the board? Next thing you know, we saw that Ford dropped its price. Now, Ford dropped its price because of the fact that they're trying to keep up as it pertains to that demand. And then at the same token, they're selling a car that's actually not going to be profitable now. Now, GM is just like, look, we ain't going to follow in that same suit. Y'all do what you do, but, you know, we're going to just stay over here. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad he asked. So think about Big Pharma also, you know, mm -hmm. and like I had kind of mentioned as it pertains to Tesla, right? Mm -hmm. So, Jolene, what do you think about that? Because, you know, I know that, you know, your legal eagle is probably just like buzzing right now. Well... <laughs> Uh, well, for the pharmaceutical in industry, you know, real life, they actually have a really good, like, real life example of market power and market failure um, within that industry. Pharmaceutical companies have market power due to, um, like, high barriers to entry in the industry and the uh, limited number of competitors. So this market power allows uh, those types of companies to increase prices for life-saving drugs, which really does that it's not fair, really, but leading to market failure and reduced access to necessary medical treatments for patients. Like the one thing I think about is like the EpiPen or insulin or any of those mm -hmm. type of life-saving um, medicines that are needed that really should be more accessible because there is this market power. Those pharmaceutical companies can charge whatever they want. All facts. So the question is now that like so now that we know like the like the a little bit of the why and a little bit of the what let's talk about how it's done shall we mm -hmm. so y'all remember this thing called game theory right yes. <laughs> <laughs> now if now this is going to like show exactly the who's who within the cousins right yeah, now. yeah let me see let how me many y'all remember this this subject of game theory uh like let's let's see uh like do y'all remember it <laughs> Oh, okay. Nick, well, Nick. You know, come on, buddy. Seriously. <laughs> All right. So shout out to Vic who actually got it. Because if you remember back in the time in year one, I mentioned a book by the name of Thinking Strategically. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a huge book as it pertains to game theory. Well, this is where it comes back full circle for everybody. Because game theory is kind of like the, the games we play every day. And when I, what do I mean by that? So a branch of mathematics and economics that studies decision-making in situations where individuals interact and their income and their outcomes depend on each other's actions. So, you know, let's discuss the role of game theory real quick and strategic interactions. Okay. Uh, so I just gave you the definition as it pertains to what is game theory, right? Mm -hmm. So this framework is useful in understanding the behavior of companies in competitive markets. If you can understand the game theory behind it, then it really, like, really, really sets the stage for, like, how is it that you can see exactly what their future could look like? But let's just keep it simple, shall we? Mm -hmm. So today we're going to go through four different game theories uh, that are within the area. And so we got Nash, 
uh, equilibrium. We got prisoner's dilemma. We got dominant strategy. And then we got zero sum game. Yeah. So um, when we look at Nash equilibrium, it's a solution concept in game theory where each player's strategy is the best response to the strategies of the other players. So the best way to think about Nash equilibrium is kind of like think about it in chess. You know, make your make your uh, next move your best move. So you know, you make a move and it's like, ultimately, I'm assuming that essentially that I'm looking at all potential outcomes. So my next move will be also predicated on what you do. But at the same token, it's like it's very strategic as it pertains to looking at all potential outcomes and what's the best move that's in that's in front of me. Um, so a key concept in theory, it, like I said, is Nash. And so when we look at, say, for example, the Nash equilibrium, it represents a stable state in which no player has an incentive to change their strategy. So when we see this across companies where it's like they have no incentive, like for example, you know, why is it that, you know, when EVs had first came out long before Tesla, why didn't they change their strategy? Why didn't automobile companies change their strategy then? Because there was no incentive for them to change their strategy. As the landscape changes though, now their strategy has changed. So now the Nash equilibrium no longer is a strategy in which that they can use at this point which therein kind of like leads us to the next thing, prisoner's dilemma, AKA a paradox in decision analysis in which two individuals acting in their own self-interest do not produce the optimal outcome. Now we see prisoner's dilemma take place all the time. Like if you've seen a law and order episode where, you know, for example, you're sitting there and you have two, you have two individuals that are sitting in different rooms and then, you know, they're faced with two different undesirables and, Mm -hmm. you know, their best bet is to work together, but they can't because there's no communication. So the communication is cut off between the two of them. So it's kind of like, you know, where it's like the the detective is literally saying, hey, you know, your 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 friend over there is like literally spilling their guts in the other room. <laughs> well, given that you can't hear what's happening in the other room, then you now have to make a decision that's in the best interest for you. And so it's a classic prisoner's dilemma example in game theory. So you know, when we think about it, like prisoner's dilemma is, you know, like I said, it illustrates the potential for mutual cooperation to be uh, overcome by the pursuit of self-interest. So in the prisoner's dilemma, two individuals must decide whether to cooperate or betray each other. If both individuals betray each, uh, they betray each other, uh, both receive a punishment. If both individuals cooperate, both receive a reward. If one individual cooperates while the other betrays the betrayer, receives the betrayer receives a higher reward while the other while the cooperator receives a punishment. Mark, that plays out in court all day. Yes. All day. You know where it also plays out? Hmm. It plays out in the startup world. It plays out in the VC world. It plays yeah. out in careers. I mean, think about how many times like where people are faced in prisoners dilemma situations when it's time to say, for example, uh, examine your colleagues and, you know, write reviews on behalf of your team. And you don't know who's going to write you a bad review. You think that you're all in this together, but then like things change when people look out for their own interests. Mm -hmm. We see the same thing take place when it comes down to companies like companies like, okay, hey, we're in this together to fight off X amount of legislation. But then when it all comes said and done, you know, remember when we started seeing all those companies like literally go through the issues of having to sit in front of uh, Congress? Yep. And then did you notice how you started seeing certain companies like distance themselves from Meta? Yep. <laughs> 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 it, it, I mean, come on. It, it happens more often than not, which leads us into dominant strategy. And this is a strategy that is the best choice for a player, regardless of the strategies chosen by the other players. Mm. So, you know, pretty much... And in some cases, this may also be known as a Nash equilibrium may not exist and a dominant strategy may be the only strategy. So this is pretty much regardless of whatever it is that everybody else has gone on. Hey, I'm going to play the hand that I am dealt, Mm. which therein we look at other things like, for example, zero sum games. So zero sum game is a game in which one player's gain is equal to another player's loss. So, I mean, the con- this concept is often used to describe situations in which that the total amount of resources available is fixed and any gain by one player results in corresponding loss by another player. So we see this happen. Like, for example, take take a huge example of looking at what's happening in you know, the chip sector. So, you know, as Intel loses market share or as their server market is dwindling, then somebody must be picking up that area. And who's picking up that market share is being picked up by companies like AMD or NVIDIA or other players. And all the while that, again, uh, Intel is losing. 
So these concepts are important in understanding the strategic interactions between companies in a competitive market and the potential for market outcomes to be influenced by the decisions and actions of those companies. So another thing that we typically see, Jolyn, is price and non-price competition. Yeah, so price competition um, is the competition between companies based on price where firms try to lower their prices to attract customers. Um, and the non-price competition is competition between companies based on factors other than price, such as quality, product design, branding, customer service, et cetera, et cetera. So getting back to price competition, um, it occurs when companies try to lower their prices to attract customers. And this type of competition is common in markets with a large number of similar products. I feel like we see this play out all the time, where price is the main factor in customers' purchasing decisions. And then companies that are able to offer lower prices are likely to gain a competitive advantage and attract more customers. So then when we look at non-price competition, um, it's competition between companies based on factors, again, other than price. Um, and this type of competition is common in markets where products are differentiated and where price is not the only factor affecting a customer's purchasing decision. So companies that offer high quality products, excellent customer service and a strong brand or it reminds me of someone, Mark, <laughs> a strong brand, you know, image are likely to have a competitive advantage and attract more customers. But both price and non-price competition are important factors in the overall competitive market and companies must, must, must understand and respond to both types of competition in order to be successful. And I could think of some companies, you know, that do that extremely well. Like what? I don't know. You know, Apple, Samsung, Let's get into it. Yeah, let's, you know, let's do it. Let's talk about it, right? Because, yes, you know, Apple versus Samsung was, that was a lot, that was a huge battle. Like anybody yeah. that like, and that spurred a lot of innovation over a period of time from what we saw, like, over, like significantly. But yet at the same token, like those commercials were ruthless. Yeah. Well, Mark. <laughs> This is a great, great opportunity to consider the smartphone industry where, you know, you have companies like Apple and Samsung and they compete based on several factors like design, quality and brand image. And then Apple's focus on design and premium quality helped it establish a strong brand image while Samsung um, focused on innovation and customer service in order to compete in this very market. And when we look at price competition, you know, we can consider the retail industry where companies mm. like, you know, Walmart and Amazon compete based on price to attract customers. You see that all the time. And then these mm -hmm. companies, they'll use a variety of strategies to offer low prices. Um, like you might see volume discounts, price matching or even aggressive uh, cost cutting measures. But both Walmart and Amazon, as well as Apple and Samsung, they're examples of companies that compete both on price and non-price dimensions. And they um, have to continue to balance those two types of competition out in order to remain competitive and successful in their respective markets. Uh, well said. And I, I definitely will say I was a huge fan, like I said, of watching like how that whole drama fared out between Apple and Samsung and even watching some of the shade, the subtle shade that we saw from uh, Walmart and Amazon, you know, when Amazon was really starting to step into its own and really start to challenge Walmart in that retail space. So, you know, and like I said, when we see these types of competitions transpire, then it's good for the consumer. So, you know. There we go. So, all right. So let's talk about entries and exits. And we're not just talking about trading just as a heads up for everybody, but you know, <laughs> it kind of like, you know, if you apply this knowledge, <laughs> I'm just saying, if you apply this knowledge in many different facets, it may possibly open up something uh, for you. Uh, so let's talk about market entry. So uh, Jolyn, you want to take this away? Because you've been on a roll here. So, Well, this is out of microeconomics. This is my favorite section. Um, everything okay. else, I'm just like, da, 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 da. but I do like the competition <laughs> and the price and all that. So anyway, let's just read this. So the you have market entry. That's the price, the process, excuse me, of starting a new business or introducing a new product into the market. And then you have market exit, which is the process of leaving a market or discontinuing a product. So um, companies 
that um, enter new markets in order to grow their business. Um, they tap into new customer segments and they expand their reach. And then, you know, when you think about it, market entry can be challenging because as new entrants often like face established competitors um, and established market positions. So just imagine trying to break into a new market and you have those type of barriers to contend with. Um, and then you have companies that are considering market entry. They have to evaluate very carefully the market and they have to assess like their potential for success including the cost and the risk involved, which we talked about earlier. And it's when, the, when these types of companies, when they don't do that, they are going to set themselves up. So um, it's important that, you know, they assess all that thing, all those things. But then on when they're, you know, when there's a market exit, for example, um, you know, we talked about it. It refers to the process of leaving a market or discontinue a product. These companies, they can exit the markets for a variety of reasons, like uh, declining demand for a product or increased competition or even a shift in company strategy. Um, and, you know, it can be a difficult decision um, because it can involve significant cost and consequences. Um, we've been seeing job losses, um, lost profits in various companies over like earning seasons. We see that all the time, especially in technology. And then um, the companies that can that are considering market exit they have to again carefully assess the potential consequences and determine the best course of action so again it goes back to decision making it always goes yep. back to decision making so it's kind of interesting because like some of the companies that kind of like come to my mind is like mm -hmm. when i think about market entry like you know netflix made a beautiful strategy back in the last financial crisis in 2008 where they went from like okay sending dvds to mm -hmm. then going into uh you know digital that was a huge market interest a huge market entry a market that was still like you know being defined and everything else but it posed a great opportunity and, and the, the number one thing that kind of like looks in my mind as it pertains to market exit is probably kodak where they had to step mm -hmm. down from a lot of the things that were a part of their initial business and step down from those things now of course they still hold on to the patents for a lot of that technology or a lot of those mm -hmm. things but especially as it pertains to imaging technology. But again, it's like they had to divest themselves down in their business to become more lean uh, over a period of time. But you want to know what like really sticks out in my mind though, Jolyn? What? <laughs> you know. Oh Lord, are there problems? I got it. I got to be petty today. You know, oh, I, I have to, because I just need to know, like, if you guys are at home for a second, you know, I want you guys to put on your shades for a second, you know, just you know, vibe with me for a second. I want you to take this all in. All right. You know, all right. Take it all in. Because do you remember this? <laughs> you have to share what your favorite <laughs> memory is. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not, because <laughs> I will never be able to live that one down. Because you know, God forbid, if my brother is watching uh, this show, I am not going to literally uh, <laughs> call this man out. Though I will say this: two boys, mischievous, mm -hmm. running around Blockbuster, playing hide and seek. A few shelves got knocked over, <laughs> and a few ass whoopings were handed out. Just Dang. one that. <laughs> in Blockbuster. Yeah, that's in a Blockbuster. But it was funny. Because we got candy, like we got those, uh, those, those, uh, those, I forgot what it was. It was like the chocolate ice cream, like it was like the small. The Nutty Buddies. I think so. Or drumsticks, so, what they call something. It was. A, it wasn't a drumstick. It was just like, like kind of like the milk duds, but it's the size of milk duds, but it was all ice cream, like the like bonbons. Yeah, but ice cream. So you know, I was here. For, but, you know, Friday nights at Blockbuster, you know, Sean knows, he, he knows what the vibe is. It's like when your parents would take you and you can get like three. And then when they started having the deals, oh man, it was mm -hmm. on and pop and the weekend was lit. Um, was but what was your favorite memory at Blockbuster, Jolyn? <laughs> Mine is not as like funny as yours, but uh, I just remember going, we would go to Blockbuster. It was like a thing. You would go on a Friday night, you get to pick out your movie. And, you know, most kids would probably be in like the, you know, the kids section, but um, I wasn't in the kids section. I was like in the music section and I came across like a documentary about Jodeci and I was like, mom, please, I got to watch this. I got to watch this. So <laughs> she let me get it. And I was so happy. That was a really good Friday night. <laughs> Lately. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Shade time complete. Let's 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 head back into it. Um, and we'll transition to market segmentation and targeting. So this is huge. Like when we think about like, you know, and funny fact, there was actually, I think it's a Hollywood video that's still in Washington. Is there still one? There's still one. It's not that far from where I live at. I'm too afraid to go in there or to even like pull up. So I just watch from afar whenever I have to hit the hardware store. You're probably dusty. I don't even want to put it to the test. So uh, market segmentation is the process of dividing a market into smaller groups of consumers with similar needs or characteristics in order to select appropriate target markets. So the process of evaluating each market uh, segment's attractiveness and selecting one or more segments to enter. So when we think about that, like, let's look at, like, for example, something as simple as Procter & Gamble. So Procter & Gamble segmented the toothpaste market into several segments, including age, income, oral, and care needs. So oral care. So when we think about, like, P&G, for those out there that need it simple, uh, they then targeted each segment with a specific toothpaste formula that addressed their unique needs, Jolene. Can you believe this? So, <laughs> so, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not joking when I tell you this. They had one for like, you know, whitening, one for gums, all those types of things. Like each and every single oral care, they like literally marketed exactly how, like they marketed to our specific segments. So some way, somehow in their commercial and programming, it was bound to hit somebody like, okay, hey, do you have sensitive gums? Or, hey, are you trying to whiten your teeth? Or, hey, are you, you know, are you trying to do, you know, X, Y, Z? Then ultimately, that's how they segmented their market. And it was pretty brilliant. So, you know, when we also think about like, for example, uh, market segmentation and targeting, you know, by dividing the market into smaller groups, companies can gain a better understanding of each group's unique needs and preferences which can lead to, um, oh Lord, it can lead to a product, you know, improved product offerings and better customer service. So those are just the two things that I can think about. Like, for example, when, when they do that, you know, like, for example, Amazon focuses on customer service. And when they do that, it's like, you know, all right, well, our service gets better and people keep wanting to come back more because of the fact that the service itself, um, like once upon a time, I think it was just like, you know, even if you return something or if you had an issue or if there was an issue with a the product, they would just immediately just like, OK, hey, either we'll send you a new one or we'll just like completely refund you. Um, so then the other part that what it turns into, it increases efficiency. So by targeting specific segments, companies can be more efficient in their marketing and distribution efforts as they are not trying to reach the entire market with a one size fits all approach. I tend to let entrepreneurs this also when you think about it from a one size fits all like. Think about your segment when you come at it from an MVP perspective, like focus on the MVP. And this is actually pretty funny because, well, not not very funny, but I'm going to come on screen for this one. So this is something that I tend to like, you know, have to deal with a lot with like, you know, when it comes to like our entrepreneurs. Um, A lot of times we want to go out there and just like, you know, be Superman. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We want to go out there and save We want to save the world instead of getting a little bit focused and saying, okay, hey, this is our MVP. Instead, what we'll want to do is like, this is our MVP, but we'll also do this, 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 and this, and this. And it's like, you're trying to become the everything, one size fits all for everybody when you don't need to do that. Focus on the one thing that you do well, and then you'll get to a place where it's like, you can start to like spread or diversify your approach as it pertains to what is it that you offer. And that's when you get to the part where you're reaching a larger size uh, market cap. But a lot of times start small. And then when you get bigger, you know, think bigger. I think that that's the that's one of the best pieces that I can hand off. And then when you do that, it increases uh, profitability. Um, so by better serving the needs of specific segments, companies can increase their profitability by capturing more market share and improving customer satisfaction. So I kind of like took the liberty, Jolene, of, you know, wanting to go a little bit further here. So what do you, what do you get at? Like, I just want to test you real quick, you know, based upon what I just said, you know, what do you get from this diagram? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's look at it section by section, looking at uh, market segmentation. Okay. So that's the first section, Mark. 
Um, uh-huh. Well, I think we should probably talk about what it means. But um, so market segmentation uh, represents the process of dividing the market into smaller groups of consumers uh, with similar needs and characteristics. So we have mm-hmm. that top second uh, section. Then we have okay. the second section over here uh, targeting that represents the process of evaluating um, each market segment's attractiveness and selecting one or more segments to enter. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then um, for positioning, that represents the process of creating a unique image for a company's product or service in the mind of the target customer. So then we look at the center, which is supposed to, this is a Venn diagram for those that are yes, listening it is. at home. It's a Venn diagram. So in the middle, then we have segment targeting position. So we'll just call it ST. Oh, ah, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm gonna make this much more challenging next time. Okay. Yeah, next gotcha. time you do that. Okay. So, okay. Now we look at um, the segment, the targeting, and the positioning. Then that represents the outcome of market segmentation, um, as well as targeting and positioning. And so, in this that little area, that's where the companies have identified like the specific segments of the market to target, and then the developed products and services that meet the needs of those segments. And then also, finally, um, that position themselves in a unique and compelling way in the minds of those target customers so it's it's like a strategy right like if you can it's like the 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 bullseye so to speak Mm -hmm. so um that uh triangular you know venn diagram will illustrate how market segmentation targeting and positioning all work together to help the companies better understand their customers it increases their efficiency so that's you could use this mark to find your um, mvp um, it also increases profitability, competitiveness, and then it allows them to separate themselves um, from their competitors. You got it. Next time I'm going to, you know what, I'm going to come back with some more fire next week. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to come back with some more fire next week. Okay. All right. We see you. All right. All right. So let's get into it like since we since we think about like uh since we talk about market segmentation and targeting we can't we would be remiss if we didn't talk about pricing strategy okay now this is going to be on the test just for everybody out there now notice how we talked about game theory and everything else and four years uh, three years later here it came back i promise you that pricing well it won't take that long it'll it'll be a lot sooner than you think but again it puts it into perspective so you know, pricing strategy uh, refers to an approach a company uh, takes to setting the prices for its products and services. There are several factors that influence a firm's strategy, including market demand, competition, product production costs, and profit margins. So, I mean, I want to like, you know, just think about it, like y'all, mm-hmm. for a second. Like, you know, you know, just you know, let's just ponder this for a moment. Mm-hmm. So let's look at let's look, look at it from a psychological standpoint. Okay. You know, when we look at retail products out there, right? Mm-hmm. Why are retail products priced at $9.99 instead of $10? It's because, Mark, you know that $9.99 just, it's one, it's not a ten whole dollars, you know? And like psychologically, <laughs> when, you see psychologically. Nine, when you see that nine or when you see the seven at the end, you're like, oh, I'm getting a deal. I'm getting a deal. It's like, it's like the opposite of when you have a hundred, like say like you only have hundreds in your wallet, like you don't mm-hmm. want to break the hundred, like it's the opposite of that psychologically all facts all pack all, all facts all right so let's uh let's get into it a little bit right so mm-hmm. we think about like you know because there's some subjects here that we gotta that we gotta think about here like okay. for example you know balancing costs competition mm-hmm. and attractiveness you know these things all refer to the challenge of setting a price for a product or a service that strikes a balance between the cost of production and the level of competition in the market. Mm. So the value, so the perceived value or attractiveness of the product or service to the customer or to the target customer. So that's that's literally how it's done. It, that's mm. literally how that psychological part takes place. So to balance comp- uh, to so to balance cost, competition, and attractiveness, companies need to consider factors such as their production costs, the prices set by com- by competitors, and the willingness of customers to pay for the product or service. Mm -hmm. They may also consider market trends and consumer preferences 
as well as their own marketing and sales goals. So we kind of like tend to see that uh, play out across every single company across the board, uh, whether it's a service or it's a product. So in general, uh, companies aim to set prices that are high enough to cover their costs and generate profits, but low enough to remain competitive and appealing to customers. Striking the balance can be, that's the part where it's like the, it, it gets a little bit, it needs a little bit of finesse, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's kind of like that, you know, you know, foot in the door or door to the face kind of mentality. <laughs> like, you know, that, that's the simplest way to kind of like think about it. That's a good All right, thing. So, yeah. So if I came and told you that essentially, you know, and, and we see this happen across the board, um, but and, uh, look, I'm not wearing my glasses, so there, there aren't this. There's no shade when I say this. Whatever. <laughs> shade not included. <laughs> a person selling you a course for five thousand dollars versus a person charging you, let's say five hundred dollars a month. You know, five thousand dollars upfront to them to the average person is so five thousand dollars upfront is going to probably get the door to the face. But let's say a foot in the door will probably be $250, $500 a month, or even discounting it all the way down to $100 a month. That literally gets your foot in the door. So it's, and the only reason why I brought that is because of the fact that I wanted to like bring it in and make it simpler for everybody as it pertains to something in which that is digestible, not to throw shade on anybody. But Mark, right, so, wait, before you get into that, so where does, where does, so when we're talking about pricing and taking to into consideration all these different factors that we discuss. So mm-hmm. where where does um, pricing come into play? Like when you're looking at your overall business structure yep. um, and your overall like business model, I guess. Um, like, shouldn't you be thinking about like the pricing based on like where that product or service like fits in your overall kind of like pipeline? Yeah. So you do a weighing as it pertains to what, like, what, what is this weighting towards the business? Like normally, like, and I, and I tell people this a lot, you know, and you're seeing a lot of like, the best way to think about it is look at the layoffs that are taking place across all these companies, right? Mm -hmm. Now they're laying off a lot of folks across many different, you know, facets and departments, but there are certain places where a lot of these companies are not going to be laying off uh, people. And those are the areas of their key business. And so those are the areas as it pertains to where the money says, okay, hey, this is our strongest part of our market. And Mm -hmm. on top of that, it's our most profitable. And on top of that, we see it as a growing segment. And so when you think about pricing structure, a lot of times companies look at it from a multitude of facts, but it's going to come down to the fact of, you know, the cost to produce or or cost to serve. Or, and then on top of that over, say, for example, price. And then on top of that, where we see as it pertains to the profit margin, then they're going to look at it as it pertains. So what is the overall market cap size or market size potential as it pertains to total addressable market or serviceable attainable market, or say, for example, you know, total overall market. So where do they fall into, where do they fall into the grand scheme of things? So that's really where it's going to come down to in the perspective. So Let's let's look at the next one, because I think that this is going to like kind of like hit it home because there's three different types as a pertain. There's three different types of pricing in which that we look at that are dynamic uh, or that are out there. So dynamic is one of them. Value based is the other and cost plus. So when we think about it in simplest terms, cost plus is pretty much companies with control over production costs. Right. And then value base is differentiated products. And then dynamic is industries with rapidly changing market demand. Mm, okay. So when we think about cost plus, right? Think about this one as Walmart. Walmart's pricing strategy for basic goods, where the cost of the goods is added to a markup percentage to determine the sale of the price or the, the sale price. Okay. So when we think about value based pricing, mm-hmm. look no further than Apple. Because its pricing strategy for its premium products like iPhone and Macs, where the price is determined by the perceived value of the brand and the product features. So, like, think about it. Like, you know, there's a reason why you see other companies that are dropping their prices in their phones to mm-hmm. make a sale. But notice, even in the midst of, say, for example, XYZ, even in the midst of a high inflation market, Apple didn't drop its prices. They kept their prices the same. They also didn't raise their prices because if they raise their prices, then they probably would have found issue with the value from their consumer base, which would have ultimately driven down demand. Instead, they kept prices the same 
And so again, uh, that's the reason why you see iPhone 14 Pro, uh, that lineup, their demand is still remaining high. Mm. Now let's look at dynamic pricing because the best, the best example that I can give you guys is probably in this situation, we can look at it as it pertains to Uber. So mm. Uber's pricing strategy where the price of a ride changes based on supply and demand in real time. So when we think about supply and demand, how many drivers are available? And then on top of that, how many folks are literally looking for rides? So that's the reason why you see high spikes in specific times around the time when everybody's getting off work or when everybody's going to work and also certain times during holiday. You see price spikes because of the demand is high, but maybe the drivers are the supply of drivers isn't that high. And that's the reason why at that point in time, when the drivers aren't high, but the demand is high, and that's when you see drivers actually make their most amount of money. It's actually kind of interesting because if you probably look at it from a standpoint, you probably get paid more as an Uber driver or Lyft driver or whatever the services are in mm -hmm. high times, like, for example, holidays and everything else versus the normal day to day. So it's it's pretty much interesting, you know, when we think about it from that perspective. Wait, Mark, before, right. before you move on. Yeah. Clinton, so um, with all your, you know, if you look at your all your years in VC land, um, mm. which pricing strategy did you see most often? Uh, so a lot of times we saw like cost plus and mm -hmm. value base, mm -hmm. um, some dynamic, it, it varied across the board. I think if I could literally say which one stood out the most, I would probably say it's cost plus and dynamic. Mm -hmm. I don't think that like value base, I think that value base is based upon like you had to hit a critical mass number and gaining X amount of market share in order to be able to dictate that price. So, which means that you've, you've literally made a name for yourself and built that type of cachet. Now, if you've cornered also a market, mm -hmm. which is very much so hard to do in these, in these day and ages, especially when we think about what's out there. There. It's not to say that it's not impossible, but it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. And so when you find folks that are able to do such things like that, then they have pricing power. And that's where it comes down to pricing power. Um, so again, that's where I will probably see the most when I look at it from a VC perspective, cost plus and dynamic, because on a cost plus side, they're going to be very much so focused on like profit margins and everything else, getting to a place where the business is profitable on the dynamic side, especially for a service based business. It's a lot of those services, a lot of those subscription-based services are built into, say, for example, the change as it pertains to demand and supply and demand. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So we're we're pretty much in the last, we're pretty much on the last leg, uh, the last frontier. Um, so cost structure and production efficiency. You know, this is where legends are made. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I really want this. This focuses on the relationship between cost structure and production efficiency in the context of microeconomics and competition. Like this is this is very much so the meat and potatoes here of what you're getting ready to see. So let's get into it. When we look at cost structure, it's the way in which a company's costs are organized. When we look at production efficiency, it's the ability of a company to produce a product or service with the least amount of resources. Um, when we think about and, and so. You know, I want you guys to think about that as it pertains to how you define like certain companies, economic uh, or economies uh, of scale. So lowering of average costs by producing more of a product, uh, economies of scope, lowering of costs by producing a wider range of products or services. So when we think about it, like, you know, cost structure, it refers to the various types of costs associated by producing a product or providing a service. These costs can include direct costs such as raw materials, labor, and overhead expenses, you know, the basic stuff that we see every day, as well as the indirect costs uh, such as marketing and distribution. So that's kind of like the simple one. That's the one that probably everybody knows. But then we get into those other parts where it's like production efficiency. On the other hand, which refers to the level of output that can be achieved with a given level of input. So companies strive to increase production efficiency in order to reduce costs uh, and increase profits. I mean, you know, I feel like that's self-explanatory, but I'll repeat that last part. Companies strive to increase production efficiency in order to reduce costs and increase profits. Mm -hmm. So if I reduce costs, then most likely my profits will increase. For everybody that's sitting here, <laughs> <laughs> what would be an area of reducing costs, uh, reducing costs to increase profits? Go ahead and write that in the chat. I'll let you know when they, when they come up with it. <laughs> oh, it's, I don't know. <laughs> Louis says pay it off well I mean layoffs there you go layoffs I, was trying to say layoffs. I, was like, yeah, I think that was, that's probably what Louis was trying to say yeah. so layoffs so when you reduce the cost as it pertains to your operational costs mm -hmm. then essentially you increase your profit margins so 
when we look at economies at scale, right? You mm -hmm. know, because that's the next thing, right? So if we look at if we look at that in the context of competition, so let, let's let's just keep it simple, right? If we look at it in the scale of lowering of average costs by producing more of a product. So you see this happen with a lot of Korean based companies. Another company that you can look at, which I'll get into in a little bit, is probably looking at Xiaomi. And Xiaomi is like one of the companies that a lot of folks don't talk about, but they were the one company that actually stood the best chance to challenge uh, Apple. Now, of course, things changed as, as you know, economies change. So they're predicated upon that, um, mm -hmm. which means that if the economy is headed towards a downturn, then that also can like definitely raise your costs. Um, and which means that you're producing, you know, a, a lower amount of product or even your wider range of products and services dwindles. Um, so when we look at that, like, you know, balancing costs and efficiency and production efficiency is a critical factor in creating a successful business. I mean, I think that that's, that's just an automatic given, right? You know, companies can lower their costs, uh, by making operational or operations more efficient and leveraging economies of scale or scope. So that's where we look at things like where we talked about cost of capital. When the cost of capital is high, then essentially you're going to have to make some you're going to have to make some tough choices. Now, mm -hmm. you know, given in the spirit of what took place today as it pertains to AMD's earnings, I'll use AMD as an example. Okay. So AMD, uh, as we know, is a semi company has improved its production efficiency and cost structure through increased investment in research and development and leveraging economies of scale in the production of their microprocessors and graphics uh, units. So when we think about it, there you that like that's the perfect of solid cost structure, solid production efficiency, and solid economies of scale and economies of scope. Now, are they completely exempt from what's happening within the marketplace? Absolutely not. But yet at the same token, it's like they're not being hit as hard as, say, for example, a company like Intel is, where essentially their costs are significantly high. Um, and then on top of that, it's like with given that they're having to change segments of their market. So, for example, as the economy, as the economies have changed, they're also having to change the scale of their product and their serve, their products that they provide. And they're already trying to catch up within the space. And in that process, that's the reason why they're literally using, you know, pretty much, you know, that's that's why they're literally going to be a few years out before they can actually make it back into the space and why they're losing market share. Mm -hmm. All right. I think we've pretty much have like three slides left and then we're done. All right. So I know that we're going a little bit over, but I mean, this is all key and crucial. So when we get to market research and consumer behavior, and I'm going to try to fly through this um, because clearly consumers are rational beings and make logical decisions all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we just do that. All right. So let's look at it from a simplistic standpoint. So there's market research and there's consumer behavior. So Market research is the process of gathering and analyzing data uh, about consumers and the market to inform business decisions. It's systemic and objective process of gathering, recording, and analyzing data about target markets and consumers. Whereas consumer behavior, the study of how individuals, groups, and organizations uh, select, buy, use, dispose of goods, services, ideas, or experiences to satisfy their needs and wants. So some simple examples uh, of market research can include focus groups, surveys, and data analysis. Consumer behavior studies may examine factors such as brand loyalty, price sensitivity, and, and product usage. Uh, market, so that's, that's the key crux to it. But let's get to the four pillars of it, um, which is the basics. And so it breaks it down to segmentation, qualitative research, quantitative research, and behavior economics. Uh, so segmentation, uh, the process of dividing a market into smaller groups and consumes the similar needs and characteristics for the purpose of selecting appropriate target markets, which we talked back about in market segmentation. All right. So we, we talked a little bit about that pretty heavy. Yes. And you're, you're seeing a lot of AI use a lot of this stuff, which is really taking a lot of the guesswork out of the way or a lot of the surveying out of the way. It's using behavioral pieces, which we'll get into that in a second. So qualitative research, research that seeks to understand and interpret human behavior and motivations, often through observation and in-depth interviews. Well, now you don't have to do that because, again, we'll get to it. Um, <laughs> quantitative research, research that uses numerical and statistical data to measure and describe phenomena. So, you know, one of the places where a lot of folks pay attention to as it pertains to retail data is like, for example, the Nielsen retail numbers mm -hmm. or say, for example, GDP or earnings and those types of things. 
those are the areas in which that a lot of folks use to pay attention towards like empirical data and get their qualitative and quantitative research. Now, the only problem with that is a lot of that data is a lagging factor because by the time it's been reported, it's already old. Yeah. So, you know, somebody should go out there and build a model that literally aggregates real-time data and real-time information. Another one is Schiller. So shout out to Andre that definitely brought that up. Um, but then, which leads us into behavioral economics. So a branch of economics that studies the psychological and emotional factors that influence consumer behavior and decision-making. So that's one of the he- huge things in which that we're starting to see the transition from where it's like we have a lot of the empirical data, like the qualitative research, quantitative and segmentation. We already know what those things are. So like, that's just natural. But haven't you guys noticed that when people talk about things now, we don't talk about things and facts. We talk about more about feeling Mm. like a lot of folks response to things or a lot of folks response to specific subjects are more about I feel this versus it is this or it is that. But Mark, even if it's something that I feel, I still state it as a fact. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just me. <laughs> I never say, oh, I think we should. It's like, no, we should X, Y, and Z or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, the reason why I bring that up for everybody is because of the fact that, again, you know, you're starting to see a lot of the AI take that and th- take those things into context. So, for example, behavioral economics provides AI the context quantitative research that provides the numbers as it pertains to the statistics and how it coincides with, again, the context. Qualitative exactly seeks to interpret the human behavior and all those other things. You know, it's learning that based upon like every single click, how long you've looked at something. Netflix does that. We talked about that. Mm -hmm. And then when we talk about segmentation, how is it able to understand that I'm a black person on Netflix that's actually watching videos and it's literally creating thumbnails that are, you know, that identify as me. Yeah. You know, that's all through the power of AI and what the power of what AI can do. And with that being said, what did you learn tonight? Because <laughs> we spoke a lot. Yeah. We definitely went over time, but um, I hope that like, again, you're going to have to probably go back and rewatch this quite a few times. Um, but just to like, you know, take it in bits and pieces. And again, by the time when we come back next week, again, we're going to see... Uh, <laughs> And you're going to see another thing. So again, you know, there was a lot here for pieces of information for, for each and every single one of you. Um, some of the things to look at it in perspective, definitely take into consideration how game theory plays out. Definitely take into consideration how we look at market research and how we segment markets and how are things targeted. You know, ask yourself this, how have I been targeted as it pertains to, you know, marketing content? The next time you go on your, on your social media, when you're scrolling through your social feed, you know, literally uh, <laughs> look at some of the advertisements that are literally playing towards you. Like those are targets. You are in, you are sitting in a segmented market that is literally targeting you. So again, um, something for perspective, something for each and every single one of you to t- take into consideration. And then the other part is how does competition play out and what strategies are being initiated? When you think about that, remember those companies that we've been telling you to track and everything else that we've been telling you to do within your homework? Mm-hmm. Add this to another part of your toolbox. By the time when you're done with this, by the time when you've reached the end of this 52 weeks, you should probably have a solid stable as it pertains to your own companies that you put together a solid thesis for, you know, moving forward as your investment journey goes long after we're gone. So there it is. Until next time, I'm Mark Monroe. And I'm Jill GC in the place to be. And this, has been the come up. <laughs> and this has been the come up brought to you in part by executive education until next week. We'll see you in the next one. Peace y'all.